Is Hayek still relevant? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Pete Betke. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Pete Betke. Pete is a university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, as well as the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and BBNT professor for the study of capitalism at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University through an analytical framework strongly influenced by the paradigm of Austrian economics, as well as other intellectual traditions, such as coming from Adam Smith, F.A. Hayek, James Buchanan, and Eleanor Ostrom. Pete has developed a robust political economy research program that expands an understanding of how individuals acting through the extended market order can promote freedom and prosperity for society and how the institutional arrangements shape reinforced or inhibit the individual choices that lead to sustained economic development. And those are the kinds of things we are going to be talking about today. I should also note that Pete has been on the podcast with me before uh, more than a couple of times now, and, uh, and I encourage everyone listening to check out those episodes too. Pete, welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm thrilled to be here, Alex. Great to have these conversations with you. Yeah, it's always great to have you on, Pete. So as you know, we base each episode on a theme and a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question and theme today is, is Hayek still relevant? And before I get to sort of, let's say, the relevancy of him and his ideas to today's and tomorrow's problems, I thought it'd be kind of fun to actually go a little bit backwards and sort of start on on a bit of a personal note. So my main kickoff question is a little, a little bit interesting here. Pete, when did Hayek become relevant for you? It's a, a, a very intriguing question to me because I have a rather unusual path to Hayek um, because I went to Grove City College, not with any intent to learn economics um, at Grove City, but uh, in fact, all I wanted to do was be a high school basketball coach at the time. And, uh, and, and, and but part of my uh, requirements at Grove City was that I had to take economics class. And I had this just amazing professor of economics that changed my life. His name is Hans Senholz. And he was a PhD student of Ludwig von Mises at NYU. And he was very involved with FEE, Foundation for Economic Education in New York City. And, uh, and he did not like Hayek, as a lot of uh, American um, Misesians are prone to be. He referred to Hayek as the John Stuart Mill among the modern classical liberals, right? And so um, when I first read Hayek, the very first book that I read was The Road to Serfdom. And I considered it a book of an apostate, not, not like a, you know, Hayek, to use fee language, Hayek leaked. He was a leaker. He wasn't, you know, solid all the way through. So right. imagine like reading Walter Block's criticism of Hayek today. And that's kind of, you know, the way I thought about Hayek as a sophomore in college, trying to read The Road to Serfdom and comparing him to Mises. In fact, my copy of The Road to Serfdom, if I wasn't so uh, lame at the moment because of a bad hip, I would get up and show you my my copy of The Road to Serfdom paperback is still mangled because when I was an undergraduate, I threw it against the wall when (laughs) he had certain, you know, things and it got bent all up, but I didn't want to get a new book because I didn't want to spend the extra money on Hayek, you know? And so I still have this original book in which I I read um, and studied him. Um, But I kind of put him on the side. I, I mean, I understood that he was a famous economist and, you know, very important and all that stuff, but this is in the late seventies, early eighties. And uh, I decided to go off to graduate school and I want to become an economist and I really want to become like, you know, uh, economist in the Mises and, and, and Rothbard kind of tradition. I end up going to George Mason University and just by an accident, my wife gets a job teaching in Alexandria, Virginia, and we had one car. And the car that uh, that she took me to, she had to do playground duty at 6 a.m. in Alexandria. So she would drop me off at the university at 5.30 a.m. on her way to school. And and then I had classes Monday through Thursday till 10 o'clock at night. 
And so she would pick me up at 10 o'clock at night. Now, just imagine you're at a place from 5.30 to 10 o'clock at night. You got a lot of time to study and everything like that. Right. And I was at the Center for Market Pro- Center for Study of Market Processes, and they had um, all these books that were in the office that I was in. I, I shared an office with the director of the center. Uh, I was in a little back office because my job was to be the editor of their uh, newsletter that they produced, which later became a journal. And uh, I worked for Don Lavoy and Richard Fink was the director of the Center for Study of Market Processes. And he was in this other room over there. And then we had a whole, like a, um, a sort of, a, you know, a entryway and it was filled with bookshelves that had all these books. And so what am I going to do? So I had already read Manger back when I was an undergraduate and I read all of Bombavric that was available in English because Senholtz was the translator of Bombavric. And of course, I read Senholtz and of course, Mises was, you know, in Rothbard, but they had a bunch of Hayek books. And I can remember, this is in my very first semester of graduate school, I got a copy of the Law of Legislation and Liberty, volume one, off the shelf. And I started reading it, and all of a sudden I had this brand new appreciation of Hayek. Hmm. It was like Hayek is, you know, the scholar. Like I was just blown away by his scholarship and his interdisciplinary scholarship, his ability to uh, be uh, so knowledgeable in law, in political science, in economics, in philosophy, all of these things like that. And so all of a sudden I had this huge shift an appreciation of Hayek because I was no longer reading them to find out what Hayek's policy position was. Right. If I go back to an undergraduate. What I judged people on was whether or not they agreed with me about the minimum wage, right? Or something right, like that. Right. So, you know, me, I, I, I should have mentioned earlier, of course, Mises and all the Austrians were big, but so was Milton Friedman's free to choose. Mm-hmm. So Milton Friedman was a huge influence on me as a kid. Um, and in particular, the book Free to Choose, which came out right when I was starting college and everything. And so I judge people against that. Like, are they as as, uh, you know, policy like astute as Milton Friedman? And if they're not, you know, because, again, remember, if you're an Austrian, Milton Friedman is 90 percent of the way great. And then right. the Austrians are even better, right? Right. And so, so it was kind of like you know, and Hayek was was softer than Milton Friedman, right? In, in a lot of ways. And so, capitalism and freedom are free to choose. We're more hardcore than the road to serfdom, right? In, in a lot of ways. And so, I was like, okay, I'm going to read Hayek now as a scholar. And once I did that, it like just like it clicked. It was like, oh my god, this guy is amazing. Like, how do I become like him? Rather than, you know, you know, because up to that point, it was more like, how do I become Murray Rothbard? So, you know, right. can I learn to become like the next Murray Rothbard or at least get in a position where I could teach college freshmen every year, Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy and State? And I still think it's a great book and I, I would never, you know, poo poo that or whatever. But it was like I became completely, completely blown away by Hayek. And then my t- professor, my main professor uh, was Don Lavoy. And I worked for him and I worked really closely with him. And I had two friends, Steve Horowitz and Dave Perchico, who also worked really closely with Don. And so and Don was very influenced not only by Mises, but also by Hayek. And he saw them as two halves of the same coin rather than diverging from one another. And so that became, you know, I'm rambling a little bit now, but I'll shut up at this. But that's how I got. It was really Law, Legislation and Liberty, Volume 1. And then I read backwards and I went from law, legislation and liberty back to individualism, economic order. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy's like an amazing. And then his monetary economics right. and everything else. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. That was that was great context because I because it actually pretty much gets right into our theme. Right. Like this idea of, of relevancy after you sort of uh, discovered or I should say almost like rediscovered and refreshed yourself on Hayek, as you said, and you actually properly got into him. This idea of like relevancy like obviously there were some dots that were connecting with you as you were going through his work what kind of ideas and concepts were relevant to you at the time that made that it it didn't just click in with you that he was a a good scholar but it clicked in with you this guy has something to say about what i want to study and how i understand the world what kind of things were i know this would be a 18 hour episode to do everything but even just the highlights of some ideas Uh, or concepts my very first semester of graduate school i ended up by writing a paper comparing hayek and lucas on business cycle theory. And um, so what really struck me was, again, 
if, if this is Robert Lucas, who just recently passed away, and he was revolutionizing economics right before I started graduate school. So I started graduate school in 1984. Um, basically, 1974 to 1980, Lucas is redoing all of modern macroeconomics. And so there still was, you know, remnants of the earlier old Keynesian economics. So, for example, when I first, you know, got involved in, in economics, macroeconomics was taught before microeconomics. Hmm. Right. So your first class in economics would have been macroeconomics. And if you go back and read Samuelson's principles book, he has macroeconomics up front because you have to have the macroeconomy in balance before you can have microeconomic uh, operation. Because if the macroeconomy is out of balance, then the micro laws aren't going to hold. Right. Mm. So one of the things that Lucas really changed in the economics profession was he said, look, what we teach on Monday night in microeconomics has to somehow square on Wednesday night with macroeconomics. And so that was called the micro foundations of macroeconomics literature. Steve, our, our, our good friend, uh, you know, his book, his, his book on, on macroeconomics um, is really about micro foundations of macroeconomics, right? That's his, that's even in the title of what he's doing, but it's Austrian micro foundations, which brings me to my point, which is that I started reading Hayek and I realized that Hayek's prices and production is a relative price story, right? It's, it's, and so now the pizza, the dots started to connect for me, like you were saying, of, okay, Bombavrik's capital theory, right? And then, you know, what Hayek is talking about with the price system. And then the connection is Mises's notion of economic calculation, because economic calculation isn't just a criticism of socialism. It's actually how capitalism operates. Mm. So capitalism operates because it has the ability to engage in rational economic calculation. Socialism can't work because it can't engage in that. Interventionism distorts it, but that causes all the unintended consequences which need to have snapback. So you get the boom and then you get the bust. So, you know, and my teacher, Senholtz, was a macro money guy. So when I first went to graduate school, I was interested in macro money and the socialist calculation debate because anyone who would have been studying Mises would have been into that. But what happened is I started to see the relevance of Hayek in actually refining those arguments. Hmm. So like, what I like to say now is that, you know, Hayek is Mises' greatest student because what he did was he took the Misesian system and then refined the arguments inside of it to try to make the arguments stronger to the relevant audience of the day, as opposed to, say, the earlier audience that Mises was addressed to. You know, science, like everything else, um, is, is, is context dependent, right? Who you're responding to exists in your real time. And so, you know, when we come up with arguments today, we can't just give someone pages from Adam Smith and say, read this, right? right? You have to actually address it to their concerns. And what Hayek was doing was he was more, he was relevant to the conversation that Lucas had started. And, and, and we could then work with that to try to have a conversation with other economists about how a truly price theoretic understanding of macroeconomic disturbances could could come through. And of course, you know, Garrison was working on that. Larry White was working on that. George Selgin was working on that. And, and then my my good friend Steve Horowitz, of course, you know, that's how he was, you know, working on these issues. And I was swept up in all of that as well. Um, and so that was a big part of it. Lavoie, my my main teacher, was doing a re-examination re of the calculation debate and the refinements that Hayek made um, in that debate became a major part of what I was interested in. And I shared that with my colleague, uh, you know, Dave Pachico. And so we talked about these ideas. Again, remember, I'm at school from 530 right. to 10 o'clock. There's a lot of time there right. besides being in class and, re and doing class homework to talk with people about ideas. And George Mason at that time was such a unique place because it was new and no one had ever had that before, right? Not even at NYU, where you had such a concentration of faculty and graduate students that cared about these ideas. And man, we just had fantastic conversations, you know, lunch, dinner, you know, all, all through the day about these issues. And, and so Hayek, and so very soon it became not about Hayek, but about Hayekianism. Hmm. How would a Hayekian 
rendering of the business cycle take place? How would a Hayekian rendering of even back then artificial intelligence, you know, start to take place? Um, to relate it to your theme, one of the first things that Don Lavoy made me read as his research assistant wasn't Mises or Hayek or anything like that. It was Herbert Dreyfus's book, What Computers Can't Do. Mm. Because remember, Longa's challenge back to Hayek from 67, and that's 1967, was what's the problem? Today I would put it on a supercomputer. So Lavoy was already like, uh, and Lavoy had a very strong background in computer science. And, and, uh, and so he was already addressing those issues. So while I'm studying economics and, and studying Hayek, I'm also reading Dreyfus on what computers can't do. I'm reading, you know, Daniel Dennett on nature of what mind is versus Searle on the nature of mind. So we can understand like what hard AI arguments are, these things and what Hayek brings to that, which then brings in the century order and all of these other kind of things. So all of a sudden Hayek was like, you know, relevant for every conversation we could have philosophically, uh, you know, analytically, um, ideologically, you know, it was all right there. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so is it fair to say to you that like, it sort of started out as uh, Hayek uh, himself and some of his points or policy positions or ideas and the way he went about things? It's sort of like the idea that Hayek himself was relevant to your thinking, but then it, this sort of sounds like it sort of transitioned more into like it, like you said, like a Hayekian framework of thinking became more relevant to you as time went on. Not necessarily just something he would have written, but something uh, the way he would have thought as well, or, or the way the concepts yeah. are applied and so, so on. So, in my own book on Hayek, I I try to tell his story about his ideas and his interlocutors in terms of what I call four uh, a, a arc of his career, which is in four stages. And the first stage is the technical economics Hayek. And it's about imputation and the economic coordination, the coordination of economic activities through time. So economics is a coordination problem. Entrepreneurial competitive process is the answer to that. So the price system is the answer to that. And it's Hayek's elaboration of the price system, basically. But then the second part of his career is the it's a twofold argument that he makes because his contributions in both macroeconomics and in economic systems were rejected by the economics profession and but they seem so obvious to anyone who kind of you know follows it in in some sense like if i said to you and no names involved or anything like that and i said oh you know the value of the pig that the farmer raises is determined by the demand and demand for bacon right if there's no demand for bacon the farmer's not going to invest a lot in the pig right and 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 taking care and maintenance and all of these things like that and if i told you about that time structure production and that time frame from the pig on the farm all the way through to the slaughterhouse to the production of the bacon and that that had to be coordinated through prices and profit and loss and didn't mention any economist name, you'd be like, hey, that makes sense, right? You know, that's, right. that's just how the world works, right? And so to me, the the kind of ideas that Hayek and, and the Austrians were talking about just was like basic applied common sense when you look out the window and you look at an economic system. So how is it that the economics profession was denying that? And so Hayek is, is like stuck with this moment and he decides that there's a deep philosophical problem. That deep philosophical problem is that they're children of St. Simone, right? And so that's his abuse of reason project. Um, but at the same time that he's doing that, the reason why they're, they have a philosophical problem that blinds them, they also have a problem of formalism, which doesn't allow them to see the institutions that underlie the economic system. So, you know, in all economics at some level, classical economics or whatever, they recognize property contract and consent. I mean, that goes all the way back to Hume. In Hume's treatise of human nature, he says, we need to have a system of stability of possession, transference by consent and keeping of promises. So, you know, property contract and consent, that has to form the foundation of our economic system. But in the formalism of the early 20th century, economists got rid of institutions. They squeezed the institutions out. So they were trying to talk about a formal a system that was institutionalist, 
as Francis Bator, one of the famous economists in this tradition, put it, we are striving to have an institutionally antiseptic economics, mm. <laughs> an institutionally antiseptic economics. So so all of a sudden, Hayek is like has to rediscover institutions as well. So that's his third stage, which is the restatement of liberal principles of political economy and justice, which is the road to serfdom, but also the constitutional liberty and then law legislation and liberty. And then the fourth arc of his career is when he pushes the spontaneous order explanations even further, right? And then he gets to philosophical anthropology, like what is the norms that evolve? And that's where you get this tension that Hayek has between our intimate order and our extended order, or the way Steve puts it in his book on Hayek and the modern family, that we have to learn in modern civilization to live in two worlds at once, right? Which is a claim Hayek makes as well. And, and so when we apply the moral intuitions of the intimate order to the extended order, we would destroy it. And similarly, if we apply the norms that would work for the extended order to our intimate order, we destroy families, community and things like that. And so you have to sort of wrestle with this. And this is what Hayek does in The Fatal Conceit. And so to me, it's not again, all of these ideas are not so much Hayek as Hayek is being a intellectual entrepreneur, which gets us to think. Mm-hmm. about the nature of property prices and profit loss, gets us to think about what are the philosophical justifications for a science in which we are who we study, right? So that's hugely different. We are in the model itself. We are never outside. So we have to do economics from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in. All of modern economics was done from the outside in. Right. It sought to govern over the economy, not govern with the economy. And it put economists on a pedestal which Hayek, of course, objected to and, and, and whatnot. Um, at the same time, what was missing in modern economics is institutions. And the very, and so Hayek, in many ways, is the first new institutional economist because he's not giving up on marginalism, but yet he's bringing back the classical econ- economic, con- uh, political economy concerns with property, contract, and consent, the rule of law, all these things like that. And then finally, he's trying to ask this question about cultural evolution. Like, you know, like, you know, what makes for the thriving societies that we live in? We have to, in fact, adopt rules, you know, that otherwise, you know, would be alien to our um, moral intuitions. Because our moral intuitions, um, you know, try to treat one another as, you know, closely bonded to each other. Um, We come out of our tribal past. But yet, in order for us to realize the great gains from the division of labor, we have to deal with people of great social distance from us. So the whole point about catalaxy is turning a stranger into a friend through exchange. And so now, all of a sudden, it becomes the concepts that Hayek is working with, mm. not Hayek the person. Right. Uh, so I, I was, you know, I never met Hayek. Hayek gave a talk at GMU the semester before I showed up. Oh, geez. So I, so I never got to see him. He was alive still. For a while, I was in grad school. He died, you know, um, uh, you know, soon after I got my PhD. Um, and and I knew a lot of people that knew Hayek and interacted with him and, and and whatnot. And you know, I've watched a lot of interviews with him and seen that lecture that he gave at GMU. And certainly wish I was in the audience for that. Um, but um, but he, I didn't have the same kind of personal connection to him that I did say with Jim Buchanan or with uh, even Ludwig Lachman, or certainly not with Israel Kirzner, who I worked with for eight years, or, you know, or my other professors like Karen Vaughn or Victor Vanberg or Don Lavoie or whatever at GMU. Um, and so um, I, 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 his ideas are what fascinated me um, and, and still fascinate me um, because I think they're so, um, in the same way as Adam Smith, that we have not exhausted what we can learn from Hayek. Right. And and on that exact point, though, you mentioned Smith. And at the end, you, you, you came to an end there talking about the ideas themselves. And, and that's that's great because it gets into the next question I want to ask. Because earlier in our chat, you sort of said that when you were studying uh, folks like Rothbard and Mises and then finally into Hayek, uh, you, you sort of, you know, briefly mentioned that, like, you know, as far as making things relevant to people, like, you know, you wouldn't oftentimes it was great to have these folks and these ideas in this work at the time, because you said, you know, to make to make a point about something uh, you, you wouldn't or sometimes couldn't go all the way back 
back to Smith because that wasn't as relevant for the time. What would you say to somebody now that we've sort of traced a bit about how Hayek became relevant to you as almost like a, a semi-contemporary, if you will. Now, now we're in this year, 2023. And for example, metaphorically speaking, we have a, a young student of econ here and they're skeptical and, and they kind of say the same thing. Like, you know, well, no, if, if we, if we want to think about things or, or, or learn about the world, we need to, we need to ideas that are more relevant to today. We can't just go back to some old guy named Hayek from years and years ago, just in that, in that general sense of relevancy to today. And, and kind of yeah. even to your point about the Smith point, how, how do you see Hayek either generally or even uniquely because of his ideas still being relevant so, so many years after? So let me start with, I think the vast majority of people get turned off to economics in college because economics professors teach economics the wrong way. Hmm. Uh, they, they teach it as a, um, in some sense, a catechism. Uh, in which they have to get graded A, B, C, or none of the above, right? And, you know, because that makes it easier for them to give tests and grade and all the rest of the stuff like that. And I, I love the title of your podcast because I think that's the number one thing that we have to stress to young people is that economics, properly taught, is a tool for the curious. It's not a set of conclusions; it's a way of thinking about the world around them that helps them pursue their curiosity about the way the world works. And so that's our number one thing, is economics is a tool for the curious. The second thing is that people have a right <laughs> to be compassionate about the world around them. When they look out in the world, they see a broken world, they want to fix it. All right, uh, this is uh, you know a theme in my, uh, my book, The Struggle for a Better World, which uh, to a large extent... Uh, you know, the title has a variety of, of origins, but one of those origins come again from Steve Horowitz and Peter Lewin, who taught me this Hebrew phrase about uh, the idea of repairing a broken world, right? That the idea is that what we need to do is repair a broken world. And when I talk to young people that get excited about these ideas, that's what they want to do, right? Their mission is to repair a broken world rather than the idea to like glorify in the what is, is, right? So they're not satisfied with that. And so what I want to say is economics is a tool for the curious and it provides discipline so that we can be effective in our compassion. And that's what we have to communicate to young people. Now, to the extent that older thinkers, Adam Smith or, you know, uh, uh, John Stuart Mill or, you know, uh, Frank Knight or Hayek or, you know, Buchanan or any of these people, all of whom long gone, Milton Friedman, um, you know, it's easy for a student to say, ah, you know, they were from the old days. Why do I have to listen to them? And I think that one of my teachers was a man named Kenneth Boulding, and he wrote a fantastic little essay that I recommend to everyone to read called After Samuelson, Who Needs Smith? And his argument is that we all need Smith because Smith's scientific contributions haven't been exhausted yet. Right. So he's still and, and Boulding introduces a concept of what he calls the extended present. Adam Smith is part of our extended present because his scientific program still has evolutionary potential. And I think that's what we need to show people about Hayek, that it's not about Hayek, the person. Right. Uh, which, by the way, frees us from, you know, worrying about whether or not we have to defend Hayek for some stupid position he held or, you know, whatever. It's, it's right. none of these things turn on whether or not Hayek made mistakes. He's a human being. He made mistakes. You know, in the biography, if you read the most recent biography, he's a horrible human being with relationship to his divorce. And are you like, I just you know, horrendous person at some level and a personal level, most most, you know, and, and, and whatnot. But but at the same time, that doesn't affect his views of spontaneous order. Right. right. And so what we need to do is stress what are the extended uh, present that that Hayekian ideas can continue to evolve. And I think there. Again, going back to the curious and the discipline, we have to remember with, with whoever we're conversation partners with, we have to begin where they are, not where we are, right? And so right. we have to actually listen and learn about what their concerns are. Mm -hmm. So if, let's say their concerns are the tremendous um, you know, income inequality that they see when they look out in the world. Well, how does Hayek's discussions and, 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 and deliberations over what social justice is or what real social justice might entail, 
can address their concerns. And what is it that he's warning against when people pursue a kind of false view of so uh, of social justice? Again, it's not that Hayek said, you know, you don't say Hayek says social justice is an oxymoron, you know, and then stop the conversation. Right. You have to show the actual demonstration of why it is that a certain notion of social justice, um, you know, is, is not going to be able to tell the story. And let me give you an example that everyone can can witness. So there's a great experiment that's on YouTube. You can look it up. It's with these Kapuchkin monkeys. It turns out the Kapuchkin monkeys, uh, you know, they would gladly eat a grape or they would eat a great a, a slice of cucumber for the nutritional value, their equivalent. But the Kapuchkin monkeys have a sweet tooth, so they prefer the grapes over the over the uh, the cucumbers. So what they did was they had a central experimenter. It's a, it's a woman. And she sits there. She has the two monkeys. They're caged side by side with each other. And what she does is she makes the monkey do a task. When the monkey does a task, they get rewarded. So the first monkey does a task, is rewarded with a cucumber. The monkey gladly eats the cucumber. Right up. Right. Okay. But now they do the second task, and the monkey is that monkey is rewarded a grape. Now this monkey over here is looking and saying like. <laughs> Well, you know, what's going on here, yeah. right? So is ang- very anxious to do the task and does the task and the distributor gives him a cucumber again. And now the monkey like takes one bite out of it and then throws it out of the cage right back at the distributor. And then the second monkey does the task, gives it a grape again. So now this monkey's like really agitated, does his task again, which checks, by the way, you know, to see if, if the rock is actually doing the right thing on the task. And then, you know, expects to get the grape, but gets the, the, the um, uh, you know, the cucumber and doesn't even taste it, just throws it right back out. Then they give the grape to the, the other one but after they done, did the task. And now the monkey over here jumps at the cage, which is where the distributor's at, and shakes it. Now, the guy who's doing this on YouTube says, oh, see, that's like the Occupy Wall Street people, right? But it's not. The Occupy Wall Street people would have jumped at the other monkey's cage, right? So not at the central distributor, right? Because the idea is, and what Hayek is arguing, is that when we get annoyed about the distribution of income and we have notions of social justice, it's because we believe there's a central distributor, just like the monkeys do, or the monkey exit experience. But if there's no central distributor there, right, how is it that we manage our envy, our resentment, all of these things like that? And so, again, you don't have to mention Hayek. You just have to mention concepts like resentment, envy, right? What is going on? And when is it that we are rightly justified to be very annoyed? Well, when the government puts its thumb on the scale to reward, let's say, you know, they are the central distributor. So if, if, in, if, if in, in, after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, we basically bailed out some of the biggest investment banks in the country, Right. Of course, you know, the average Joe should be pissed off because where did their tax dollars go? And we just saw it again in the most recent thing with, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and and, right. and, and, and Signature Bank and everything like that. And so now we're in a kind of a complete world in which we're in a complete bailout nation notion. So now we do have this central distributor and they are, in fact, putting their thumb to reward some people and punish others. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about inequality in America, we need to talk about structural inequality. We need to talk about, and the same thing with, you know, police abuse or anything like that. You know, the police do put their thumb on the scale in against some groups and, and favor other groups. And so at that point, we're trying to say justice should be blind and justice isn't blind. It has one eye looking and it says, no, we're going to do this. And we should say, no, you know, let's not, you know, they should never do that. And so, you know, these are the kind of questions I think to young people that we should be talking about and, 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 and reassessing the, the, what would life look like in a world where we treat each other as one and one another's dignified equals, that we follow the rule of law that, you know, we don't have politics by discriminatory politics or promissory politics because politics should never benefit some at the expense of others, but it should only do policies which benefit everyone. 
or they shouldn't do the policy kind of thing. And so this is the the, the kind of ideas that Hayek had in his um, uh, his repertoire um, that it's those ideas that we need to bring out. Right. That makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I think a, a key to a lot of what you just said there and how you ended as well is back to something you said a little earlier in the conversation too, which is at the end of the day, presenting Hayek and Hayek in ideas as ways to sort of be curious about and explore these problems is, is a, and, and tools you can use to understand the world better. That's a lot different, exactly as you said, than someone turning around saying what Hayek's answer to something is or his policy yeah. sta- stance on something. So the idea that the, you know Hayek is relevant as a set of tools to explore I think is really key too. It's not just there's Hayekian answers to things. There's Hayekian ways, if you will. Yeah. And it's up to us to be creative and clever with them because it's a whole different context. So one of my you know favorite chapters of all of Hayek's writings is the chapter in the constitution of Liberty on the creative powers of a free civilization. Because again, one of the main lessons of that is that, you know, we're going to maximize the chances of accidents to happen. Because we don't even know what we, you know, as he says, as humbling as it may be to the human, you know, rationality, uh, you know, we don't know what it is that we want until someone discovers it and, you know, provides it. And that's true for today. This is the whole issue of innovation and everything like that. And there's a reason why Hayek has that appendix called why I'm not a conservative, because conservatives want to say stop and let's hold the world still. And there's no doubt that you have to have some stability in the framework and, you know, things like that. So it's predictable. That's why you have the rule of law. You have changes that go on the margin. It's one of the reasons why Hayek likes the idea of judge-made law rather than legislation. There's like checks that that sort of constrain sort of, uh, you know, just trying to change things ex nihilo or whatever. But at the same time, it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. And the world that we live in, is one in which we should be open to the smorgasbord of, you know, human variety of enjoyment of things, right? And again, I'm not saying that we have to, you know, for a liberal, I think um, all that is required is a complete commitment to modus vivendi, a live and let live, meaning that toleration has to be the key issue. So you don't have to have joyful acceptance of everyone else's lifestyle, but you have to allow them to have their lifestyle. That's the key issue. They have the right to live their life as they choose, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to want to live their life, right, right? that way. And I think that sometimes, you know, for example, like Aaron Ross Powell, sometimes in his discussions more recently is like trying to say, we have to actually embrace, you know, what everyone is doing. And I'm all in favor of, you know, being as tolerant as you can be about what he's talking about. But I think that demands too much of of liberals. Right. I mean, you know, you can't it's like in economics. I mean, I mean, this is too insider baseball. But, you know, in economics, there's a big demand to have pluralism and economic thought. So you have the Austrians, you have the Marxists, you have, you know, the post Keynesians and you know, like that. But if you ever listen to most pluralists, the one group that they never want to have is neoclassical economists because they have that you know hegemony right now right but the reality is if we had pluralism you would have neoclassical economics would be there and in a pluralistic society let's say you know chandran kukathas's liberal archipelago you know you're going to have conservative enclaves right you're going right. to have you know the quakers over here but you're also going to have you know the, the the amish over there and you know the the the, the and, and the issue is as long as you don't like want to violate the rights of any of these other people. You just allow them to be who they are and and they don't violate your rights. And I think that's all we can demand of a liberal society is the modus vivendi criteria of live and let live. Right. Um, But that doesn't mean that some of us won't want to live in cities, right? Where we have, you know, dense population and we can enjoy the, the, the variety of life all around us and, 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 and regale in that. And others will want to live in Montana and, and, you know, not have a neighbor that's near them or whatever. And it's like, okay, like, that's cool. You know, whatever. Um, as long as you're not, you know, as Leonard Reed, old fee, you know, put in an old essay, anything that's peaceful, right. Yeah. Anything is peaceful is should be available in the liberal society. Right. And I I actually think that's an excellent place to take a break because we do have to do at least one. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Pete Betke today. (music) 
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm with Pete Betke today. So, Pete, I think the first chunk of our conversation was great. We covered a lot. And in a way, we sort of traced what I said, you know, I would like to do at the outset of the episode. We sort of ran back a little bit. And I asked you some personal questions first about Hayek's relevancy to you uh, years ago when you, when you were more learning about economics and so on and so forth. And, and that was great. Then I sort of moved us to the present about, you know, to today, what would you tell people about whether or not these ideas and tools are relevant? I want to talk a bit, a bit about the future now. And I'm certainly not going to ask you to predict the future, but but I sort of have an, what I think is an interesting jump-off question and point here because I think it's an interesting way to hear your take on Hayekian ideas and how they kind of come up against some, let's call it, um, competing ideas of a future, if you will, especially about how economics will look in the future. So right now, uh, you know, especially just a few days ago with Apple sort of unveiling like VR goggles and, and the future of work potentially and us not even needing a modern computer anymore. And lots of things are changing. You know, there's a lot of space exploration. The, the next the next uh, few decades in many people's minds look like we're going to hit a huge upward swing of like sort of maybe even getting closer to this hyper-technological future uh, that people only dreamed of when they were writing Star Trek. And all that to say, there seems to be two extremes when it comes to the economic reality that some people envision or dream about. And one of them is this idea that we are going to have so much modern tech that perhaps, this is one stance, that perhaps this idea of of the chaos of, of the free market might not be relevant anymore. Is it possible we're going to have so much data and so much input and so much real-time um, information going back and forth that it's possible for someone to plan an economy that discussion's coming back versus there's other folks that talk about that the availability of this information these new technological avenues and the way we communicate and the way that's going to change is actually going to bring sort of almost a, a new era of uh of unlimited potential of what free markets can give us. So I want to address both. That was my sort of big overarching umbrella for this last set of the conversation here. So as far as Hayek's ideas and how they're relevant to uh, what I'm reading in some cases, the new swing of essentially command economy thinking, um, they're saying the old free market ideas are irrelevant when we have so much information and so many smarter people that are able to perhaps uh, govern trade and commerce and objects, physical objects moving around and data objects moving around. Some people are saying we're going to enter a future where technology solves our problems. We don't need this old capitalism stuff or spontaneous order and markets. What would you yeah. say to that point of view? And then we'll get to the other one later. So, it, it, you know, it, it, this is a, I just have a new paper out on the feasibility of techno-socialism. It's in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization. If any of your listeners are interested, they can just email me, and I would gladly send them the copy of the paper. I'm also working on a monograph on the history of the calculation debate, in which a section of it relates to that. That's uh, being vetted right now at Cambridge University Press, and uh, all signs seem pretty good for it, so we're hoping that it's going to come out Uh, fairly shortly here. Um, But let me just uh, address your question by addressing the issue of spontaneous order first, and then I'll get to the the technological boom that could follow. So the first thing is is that in Hayek's theory of spontaneous order, one of his big innovations was first to identify the spontaneous order of the market inside of an institutional framework. So inside of of a world which has private property, freedom of contract protected by the rule of law, how does the entrepreneurial market process work, right? But what he does later then is try to generate, using spontaneous order theory, the institutional framework itself, which is the evolution of institutions. That was a major innovation on Hayek's part. It has roots in Menger's investigations and and whatnot, but Most economists, like, say, a great economist like Armin Alchin, if you read his textbook, what he says is, right in the beginning, he says, let's assume clearly defined and enforced property rights. Now let's do economics, right? And, you know, Hayek was about, like, where do these property rights come from? How did they evolve? How did they get to be selected to be the right type of property rights, right? Kind of idea. 
And so that's the first thing is that Hayek, um, you know, there's these two levels of spontaneous order analysis, analysis within the rules and analysis of the rules. But then the other thing that Hayek does, which is amazing, is that in his discussion of the spontaneous order within the rules, he focuses on this issue of the generative and discovery aspects of the price system. So the prices are not summaries of past costs, but instead guides to future action. And so they have to actually be generated within the system. So they are generated out of entrepreneurial acts of of alertness and of creativity. Um, And they only exist within that context themselves, which is going to get me to the computer argument in a second. And so the question is, is can AI effectively generate the data as opposed to process given data. All right. Now in social learning, there's a distinction between what they call um, kind learning environments and wicked learning environments. Okay. In a kind learning environments, the parameters are fixed. All right. And so in that world, algorithms that can process very quickly are very, very effective. All right? So the parameters are fixed in the game of chess. Right. There's only so many moves in the game of chess following the rules. It's a large number. The very, very difficult task to compute all of that. But a computer can do that Mm -hmm. because it knows all the various variations on the move and then can process quickly, right? But in wicked learning environments, all right, the parameters aren't fixed. And that's more like playing tennis or playing, you know, soccer in which the way in which Ronaldo kicks the ball is never the same both times. Right. It's, so, you know, the spin that comes to him and everything like that. So the actors in a soccer game, the actors in a tennis game, I was just watching a tremendous tennis game yesterday with Alcaraz and, uh, and uh, Sissipas right at the French Open. They were in the, the quarterfinals. And Alcarez was just, you know, unbelievable, uh, you know, and, and doing so creative and everything with his shots. And, you know, and he was doing things that a top level player, I mean, you know, Sissipas has never lost. He ended up by by getting some games in the in the third set. Um, but he was on, on track to actually lose the match by losing more, by having gained less games than he's ever had in any match except for one match against Nadal. Huh. He was just getting blown out. And this is the number five player in the world, right? right. So we're not talking about like, a, and, and it was just amazing. But the adaptation, creativity, and skill level that was associated with it. Now, imagine if you took a robot, you're up at MIT at the Creative Learning Lab, and you take a robot and you say, try to mimic Alcarez or try to mimic Ronaldo, Right. They can't do it, right? The, the computer can't do it. Or try to mimic a basketball, like like just try to take you know uh, you know uh, uh, someone from the Toronto Raptors and say like okay, mimic them, right? They're not going to be able to do that because they can't do the adaptability adjustment things like that. But if you said mimic Boris Kasparov, right? Then you know Deep Blue can do that, right? Because Deep Blue can process and all this stuff. You know, and, and a, 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 a machine, a robot can have a perfect golf shot. Right. Because the, the, no one's throwing a ball at you. A machine cannot have a perfect batting thing. It can't be like a, a Toronto Blue Jay. Right. Because the pitcher is throwing this object at you, which has all kinds of different spin and stuff like that. It's not. Of course, if they threw it in the same place at every time right. and the bat was on one plane, they'd be able to do it or whatever. OK, so you get the point. The question now is, which is more analogous to what goes on in economics life? Is it more like algorithms now? Part of the issue that confuses people is that a lot of these large firms use algorithms to help them in their supply chain decisions. Right. But that's because they have a residual claimant. There's right. There's a residual claimant. And so they have a built in monitor that can say whether or not that tool is helping me or not helping me. And they are large. I'm not saying Amazon isn't larger than some economies or something like that. But what it does have is it has a residual claimant and the economy does not. Economies don't have residual claimant because the people's tastes and preferences are constantly shifting and there is no single arching hierarchy of what values are. And so I think the problem, the very nature of the task is one in which we will eventually come to realize that machines 
can be tremendous tools that allow us to improve our lives by lowering transaction costs and all kinds of other things like that. But what they can't do is they can't substitute for the creative and clever you know, application of those tools that is done by human beings and that human judgment is going to always be required to be involved in this. This leads me now to my second point, which is your point about innovation. These tools that we have are going to open up this economy tremendously. And in fact, the way you think about it is Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley says, you know, innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. So again, innovation doesn't come about like Mariana Matsukuta. I say your name wrong all the time. Matsukuta, right? Matsukuta. And, and uh, you know, where it's a moonshot project by the government and does all that stuff like that. It's, yeah, there's moonshot project, but they exist within the sea of capitalist possibilities, right? And, and they have to constantly be tested against that. What McCloskey refers to as trade-tested betterment, right? So you have to have trade-tested betterment in order to do that. So innovation is the child of freedom, but the parent of prosperity. If the, if the costs, if, if our costs are lowered and these innovations take place and we realize the tremendous gains from trade that we're expecting and the tremendous burst of technological innovation, Maybe we get Kurzweil's moment, right? And we, get, we get exponential growth that, that takes care of all the government stupidity that we've had, you know, over the last 70 years. Because, you know, if you look at the world out there right now, we have a tremendous amount of, you know, government stupidity that is piled up on us. Mm-hmm. The most egregious of this, of course, is war, in which we have not only material resources wasted, but human lives wasted. You know, just look up the cost of war project and what happened in, in Afghanistan. But now look at what's going on with Ukraine and Russia as well. And, you know, it's just it's a tremendous toll of human human uh, beings and also, uh, you know, uh, uh, resources. And so the question is, is how can we ever get beyond this kind of trap, this violence mm-hmm. trap? And it's not because, just and it's not just also like a cost in the sense of there's one person dead. If you want to get it's, it's an opportunity no. cost in many ways, too. Right. There's a right. broader sense. It's a cost, too. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, also, there's effects on policies domestically at home, which restrict our liberties. There's all these kind of things. Like the work of Chris Coyne is phenomenal on this. Mm-hmm. But I think if we could unleash the creative powers of a free civilization, like Hayek says, this is the Ridley you know, point. You could end up by actually having this tremendous growth. And this growth would actually end up by being able to, you know, pay off some of this stupidity, you know, that we have and and and, and get rid of it. Now, one of the issues that we have is that a lot of people have a natural Ludditism associated with them, right? And that is, is that they see that the existing jobs are being substituted for by machines, so they worry that the existing jobs are going to, you know, disappear. And But my point is, is that whenever a job disappears and a new era begins, a new job comes about, right? So when we got indoor plumbing, we got rid of water carriers. When we got the electric light bulb, we got rid of whaling. You know, there's still cities in America where you can go in, in, in New England and they're kind of, you know, pretty much desolate now because they were once whaling, thriving whaling towns and they've never really developed. But then there's other cities like Pittsburgh, which, you know, at one time was the steel industry and then the steel industry faded. And then Pittsburgh reimagined itself as a, as a technology and, and, and health. You know, uh, it's a major center for medicine and whatnot there now. And, you know, Rand McNally still rates it as the number five city in the country to live in, you know, because it, it, it whereas Detroit refuse to adjust and adapt. And so Detroit, you know, is is still lingering in the fact that it's the failure of the auto industry, you know, and so we have to actually allow these constant adaptation and adjustment to the changing circumstances to see that we could have the benefits of this modern technology. And in, from my perspective, the way you do that is to get people, get government the hell out of the way. Right. And allow people to, you know, discover what are the better patterns by which to, you know, organize their lives, provide entrepreneurial opportunities to everyone. I, I, I like to tell this story because I spent a lot of time at University of Francisco Marroquin and they were doing an interview with me one time. And uh, they they asked me, uh, what would I say to a young person that really cared about crushing poverty? And one of the things when you go to Guatemala 
when you fly in, when you get low, one of the things you see is the slums mm-hmm. along the side. And then when you get out of the airport, you see them again. And, you know, the huge discrepancy in income that exists in a society like Guatemala. So you could imagine someone would be very animated by poverty and the alleviation of poverty. And uh, they asked me, you know, what I would do. And I started by giving an answer like a typical economics professor. Oh, you get people interested in learning economics, <laughs> teach them all things like that. And then I stopped about two minutes into it. And I said, no, 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 wait a minute. I said, you know, scrap all of that. What you really should encourage them to do is be an entrepreneur, right? To st- set up, start their own business and then hire the people in the in the local area and, and build up a business and everything like that. I said, that's how you'll end up by, you know, uh, uh, addressing the issues of poverty. And I think that this issue about addressing the three serious problems that Western democratic societies like Canada and the United States face, which is, in my opinion, you know, our fiscal gap, that is, we've made so many promises mm-hmm. with, the, with the public purse that we can't possibly pay for them in the future. And so we're going to have to figure out how to do that. The second thing is our monetary policies, which have been extremely uh, loose, not only after the financial crisis, but especially because of COVID mm-hmm. and the way that people chose to fight COVID. And we're going to have to actually have an end game of the way in which we balance that to take care of the monetary mischief. And the third thing is structural inequality that's brought on by an increase in the rent-seeking activities within the state. So yeah. in a recent recent talk I gave, I said, look, capitalism has a marketing problem because it has a mercantilist problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, people look at it and they and they say, Oh, look at capitalism, it has all these privileged people. Well, of course it does, because they've been privileged just like under mercantilism. Yeah. They were privileged by the by the king. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing now. And if you look at pharmaceuticals, for example, in the United States, and you look at lobbying budget of the pharmaceuticals, it's unbelievable how much they've spent to try to get yep. the monopoly privileges that they have. Yep. And so how do we have this honest conversation about our fiscal imbalance, our monetary mischief, and our structural inequalities? And to me, I think that we, as classical liberals, we need to be the adults in the room. And we need to engage in that conversation in a way that resonates with the young people mm-hmm. so that they can understand what's going on. And not engage in like denialism, right? You know? like, right. Oh, you know, there is no problem here. You know, just let the market work or whatever. Yep. Because the thumb has been put on the scale. Yep. The favor, and so they're not markets. What they are is privileges. And mm-hmm. so this going back to Hayek, this is why Hayek makes such a big deal out of the difference between law and legislation, because legislation, its root term is legis, which is privileges. And whereas law is the generality of the law, right? No, Congress shall pass no law that benefits some group that doesn't also benefit every other group. And so what Hayek won is generality in the law versus privileges of legislation. And so he's that tool is a very useful tool or what he puts it in another thing. We lived in a society of, of status. Then we moved to a society of contract. And now we move back right. to a society of status. Yes. So how is it that we get back to a society of contract? Yep. And that's that's the kind of questions. Again, Hayek had those answers for his time. We have to be creative for those answers for our time. And there are yeah. and there are like you know the third category we're talking about that mercantilism problem is one I'm very interested in. And I do my my writing about a lot recently, and and I think it's really important that you outline that because like I think there there's sort of as we address problems going into the future, there's unfortunately people who uh, totally agree in their own way that government should get the hell out of the way. But the alternative is why don't we just like through government get, give funnel this money to people like Elon Musk, for example. They know what to do and that's i think uh what we're sort of in danger of creating is sort of a political economy of sort of like the uh the the sort of state capitalist billionaire celebrity in in musk we trust stuff i think that's and and some people by default that are free marketeers are happy that it's not government but i don't think that other way is is a solution either i don't i don't think we should be going that way one of the weirdest things for me in the in the last five years i guess longer now um is the Trump phenomena because I'm a kid who grew up in New York, New Jersey area. Trump is a shyster from the time I was a kid, right? He, he, um, there's never a moment where he, and then, you know, where he's actually like a heroic character, right? He's just a shyster. And 
then what happens is is that even when it comes to economics, he's like the most ignorant of all people in economics because he denies that we live in a in a uh, positive sum you know game. He believes that we live in a zero sum or negative sum game. His whole book of the art of the deal is that he wins and the other loses, right? right? That's like his whole thing. And even when he was running, he was like, you know, I'm winning, you know, rather than the idea. So he he doesn't see this issue of mutually beneficial exchange. So I get that he is rude and makes fun of the progressive elites, okay? And But what happened was people got so interested in that that they forgot that his policies – you know, I mean, I, you know, there are policies that he did, which were good. Right. But you got to always remember is that he was the one who also agreed to shut the economy down during COVID. Right. He's the one who wants to actually close the border. Uh, he's the one that actually, you know, wants to engage in trade wars with people and stuff rather than, you know, free enterprise and stuff. And so the idea that he is some kind of free market hero is absurd to me and, 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 and that anyone should, you know, weigh in. Now, that doesn't mean that I think Biden is a free market right. you know, hero. No, he's horrible. Uh, you know, and, and again, he's been someone that I haven't liked all the way back to when he took takings from Richard Epstein and waved it at a Supreme Court, you know, nomination hearing and said, do you believe this book? You know, and, and like criticize it or like that. And it's like, yeah, you know, this guy is terrible. But the reality is, is that, you know, we're basically choosing between two really, really bad choices at some level and in terms of from a market oriented point of view. And so you have to just address that question, I think, in a serious way. Yeah, Absolutely. And with that, Pete, I mean, our time has wound down here. As usual, it was great going through many different topics and and facets of this theme uh, with you. And I'm going to bring us to our formal wrap up. Uh, I want to make sure, as you know, that in each episode, the guest ultimately has the last word to bring everything full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you our last official question here. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether and how Hayek is still relevant. In other words, if you want someone to take away from our conversation today, uh, one or two or just a few things, if anything, listening to everything we talked about today, what would that be? What would you want people to, to take away and leave them with? You know, the title of your podcast is The Curious Task. And that comes from Hayek, who says that the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. I want to sort of stress that point, which is the spontaneous order point, the creativity point, the discovery aspects of the economy. Um, But I also want to stress that economics is this tool for the curious. So not only is the task curious, but the discipline itself is a tool to help the curious and excite and discipline the imagination of the compassionate. And so we need to get that across to young people so they read economics and they read it in the most exciting way. And I think that that's more than Hayek, right? Hayek belongs in a long tradition of great thinkers in the history of economics and thinkers that are currently generating economics that they should be reading. But what they can't do is they can't, the current generation can't generate the exciting and fascinating aspects of economics about discovery, degenerative process of the market and like that without recognizing the contributions that Hayek gave to them to build on. And so there's this great paper that was published a year ago by Brian Author, who is at the Santa Fe Institute. He's one of the complexity gurus in economics, and it's called Economics in Nouns and Economics in Verbs. And his argument is that the history of modern economics is one in which economics is done in nouns, which is that it's done of a state of affairs. It's all about defining a state, a stasis. It's not a dynamic at all. But what we need to do to make economics come alive is to actually make economics about activity, about real human beings, about uh, the, the, the sort of the competitiveness, right, to compete rather than competition, these kind of things. So it's all about the verbs. And his argument is that there is a building block of that kind of economics already available to young people, and it is Austrian economics. And I think that's the message that I would want to give to young people if they, you know, read or listened to Paul Romer's Nobel Prize address. 
He says at the end that it's all about novelty and creativity. We need to move economics into a realm where we recognize novelty and creativity. Well, again, creative powers of a free civilization, right? These kind of social learning environments and the way institutions shape the way that we learn and encourage us. And I think this is what Hayek has to offer us. Smith has those ideas to offer us. Mill has those ideas to offer us. Buchanan has those ideas. But we build them all together. We mix and match and we build something new out of the combinatorial of all these great thinkers. And that, I think, is is the task that I hope listeners get excited about mm. and that economics is like just the coolest thing in the world when it's taught the right way. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Pete Batke, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Again, it was great. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.